When you were growing up, were you ever a part of a clique? Now, I was never one of the kids that was cool enough to be a part of a clique, although with a couple of exceptions, I think I was. When we were younger at our denominational summer camp, everyone who was not from Niagara always said that Niagara kids, and in particular Southridge kids, acted in a way that excluded others. They were a clique to themselves. The people felt like we were snooty and arrogant in the way we treated everyone else. Probably the only other time I can really think of being a part of a clique was in my engineering department at the University of Waterloo. And in particular, I mean, we looked down on everybody that was not an engineer at Waterloo, but in particular, we loved to look down on the math department. We had songs and chants and jokes to remind everyone that engineers were better than math majors and engineers from Waterloo were better than engineers from everywhere else. It seems like whether you were a part of a clique or whether you were part of being excluded from a clique, cliques were a disastrous, unfortunate part of the social fabric of all of our lives. There were these groups that formed based on the inclusion of people who shared certain characteristics, whether that's athletics or ethnic background or um, whatever, they were people who looked like each other, talked like each other, thought like each other, act like each other, felt like each other, who shared a sense of the world to the exclusion of everybody else. Sociologically, what cliques do is they offer a sense of stability, security, even safety as pertains to my identity. There are other people like me, so it's okay to be me. They offer a sense of belonging. This is a community where I know I can fit, where I can experience loyalty and commitment if I stay loyal and committed to the group. And every we group that forms, sociologists say, require a they group. Right, A group, as much as it is important to understand who we are, it is equally important, maybe more important, to understand who they are, the people who we aren't. Those are the folks we exclude, the ones we ridicule and reject, the ones we mistreat or ignore because they don't look like us, they don't act or think like us, they don't believe or behave like us, they don't feel or see the world in the same way that we do. So we remind them that they are inferior compared to us. Probably the biggest clique I've ever been a part of is this group of people who refer to themselves as Canadians. <laughs> I mean, oftentimes we, we don't know necessarily who we are. Maybe, you know, politeness, beer, hockey, cold. But we feel a kinship with each other that's rooted primarily in who we're not. And you all just said it in your heads, we're not Americans. That's how cliques work and what they do. And sadly, they have been rooted in the history of the church from the very beginning. In Mark chapter nine, starting verse 38, it says, teacher said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. 
Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against us is for us. One of Jesus' disciples sees somebody who is acting as though he was one of Jesus' disciples, but he wasn't a part of their little group that had surrounded Jesus. And so John goes out of his way to make this person stop being a poser, stop pretending to be a part of the group. You see, what John was doing was policing the boundaries. We need to keep those inside the circle pure, and therefore we need to keep those outside the circle, outside the circle. We need to know who we are. We need to know who they are so that we can love and accept we and reject and ridicule they. And the church has done this always. Martin Luther King Jr. said that racially the most segregated time of the week is Sunday morning. The churches where people don't look like each other, act like each other, believe like each other, or practice like each other, don't meet with each other. Even in, you know, in our denomination growing up, if you wanted to take communion in a Mennonite brethren church, the only way to qualify to do that is to be a member from another Mennonite brethren church. If you were a Christian who loved and followed Jesus, but you belonged to a different denomination, you were not part, you were not enough like us to qualify to be in the circle. But we do it individually too, even as Christians. A couple years ago, we talked about how our friendship network is made up of a group of about five best friends, a group of about 15 close friends, a group of about 50 good friends, and a group of about 150 people we would call friends. My question is, as you think about your five or your 15 or even your 50, how many of those people are there because they look like you, talk like you, think like you, act like you, behave like you, believe like you, feel like you, look at the world the same way? How diverse are the communities of people who form your friendship circles? Because this is what we do. We form groups of people like us to give us a sense of safety and belonging and meaning. And it is fundamentally the opposite of what Jesus says. Jesus says, don't stop him for whoever's not against us is for us. You know who belongs in our group? Every single person who wants to be. Because the love of God is broad. In John 3.16, it says, So God so loved the world that God gave God's only Son, so that everyone who believes in Jesus won't perish but will have eternal life. Who are the, what is the group of people that motivated to God to act savingly towards the world? What is the group of people that motivated God to send God's Son, Jesus, into the world? What was the characteristic they shared in common? It was humanity. God's love reaches out to all without exclusion, condition, or restriction. And God demands that the communities that claim to represent God in the world do the same thing. We looked at Romans 15, 7 earlier where it says, So welcome each other in the same way that Christ has also welcomed you for God's glory. The Apostle Paul says, if you want to glorify God with your life, if you want to make the beauty of God's love obvious to the world, 
then welcome everybody else with the same lack of exclusion, condition, or restriction as God has welcomed you. And the word welcome, by the way, doesn't mean, you know, to shake somebody's hand at the door. The word welcome means to pull somebody towards yourself, to embrace them towards you, to, to claim them as your own, to say you belong to us. It's what the Bible calls hospitality. In Hebrews 13, it says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. The word hospitality doesn't refer to see, to serving tea and cookies and making polite small talk with people you know and you like. The literal translation of the word hospitality in the Bible is loving strangers like family. Loving the one who's different. Loving the one who's outside the circle. Loving the one who doesn't look like you, talk like you, act like you, think like you, believe like you, behave like you, feel like you, or look at the world the same as you. Loving the one that makes you uncomfortable. Loving the one who causes tension in your soul. Loving the one who sometimes you're tempted to think of as an enemy. Loving that person like your own flesh and blood. What does it look like to love people like that? It means to offer them what we would offer the people who are like us. Safety, security, or safety, belonging, and meaning. Christian writer Brian McLaren has said recently that our brain, broadly speaking, is divided into three areas that form a three-person committee to help us navigate the world. The first person is the amygdala, who's responsible for our basic needs, has this instinct for our needs to be met, including our need for safety. It's the fight, flight, freeze, appease part of our brain that keeps us safe in danger. The second part is the limbic brain, which is sort of the emotion center. And part of what the limbic brain does is it forms relationships and connections with other beings. It's where we sense our belonging. It is the infant's infant, the infant's instinct to feed that comes from the amygdala. It is the infant's desire to look into the eyes of their parent or caregiver while they do that comes from the limbic brain. And the third part of the brain is the neocortex, the reason and logic center where we make meaning of the world. And the whole point of community is for us to come together and to together discover the meaning of this life of following Jesus. But in order to discover meaning, we have to feel like we belong like there's a place for us, like we can make connections, like we fit in, that we, these are our people. But in order to feel like we belong, we have to feel safe, that these people aren't going to hurt me just because I'm different. I would say the Bible challenges us to a life of hospitality that offers safety, belonging, and meaning to everybody, regardless of how similar they are or how different, without exclusion, restriction, or condition. And then Jesus goes further. Luke 14, then Jesus said, when you host a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends, your siblings, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. Instead, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the disabled, and blind. Jesus, in the ancient world, when you ate with somebody, it was more than just sharing food. It was a way of saying, you are my people. It was a way of offering equality, dignity, and respect to others. 
And Jesus says to his disciples, when you gather people around, when you set the table, don't just set the table for people who are already in your circle. Don't set the table just for people whose circle you would like to one day be a part of, your rich neighbors. Instead, Jesus says, when you set the table, set the table in an inclusive way that actually prioritizes people who don't get invited to tables. In this sense, he talks about the disabled and, and blind. But he's saying, it's, he's sort of flipping the table of invitation and saying, when you invite people to your table, be a living manifestation of what Jesus has said somewhere else, where the last people to be invited are the ones who are invited first. Set the kind of table where the last people to be picked on the playground are the ones you pick first. He's not just talking about how we share food. He's talking about intentionally and deliberately offering safety, belonging, and meaning to people who aren't usually included in our communities for those things because they're too different than us. There's lots of ways to do it. I just want for, as we close, I just want to think about one really simple but powerful way that we offer safety, belonging, and meaning. And that's in the way that we use language. If you've been listening, you've noticed in this sermon that instead of reading the words cripple and lame, I read the word disabled. Why did I change the Bible like that? (laughs) Turns out the words cripple and lame are offensive and even insulting to most people who have disabilities in the way that they walk. So I choose not to be offensive and insulting. You've noticed that instead of reading the words brothers and sisters, I read the word siblings. Because even in our community, there are people whose understanding of their gender doesn't fall neatly into clean-cut categories of male and female. There are intersex people and transgender people and people whose gender understanding is more fluid than that. And maybe that's not how you understand gender, but that's actually not important because we're not talking about your gender. And equality, dignity, and respect says, I'm going to treat you in the way that you would like to be treated, in a way that honors you. You'll have noticed that I didn't, when talking about God, use the language of he and his. I said God and God's. Because I think sometimes when we ascribe masculinity to God, we run the risk of communicating that men are somehow more in the image of God than other people. And I wouldn't want to exclude anybody from their understanding of being in the image of God. I remember years ago, there was a novel called The Shack in which the Trinity was depicted as a black woman, a male Middle Eastern man, and a, an Asian woman. And everyone was all up in arms. But, but why not? If everyone is equally reflective of the image of God, if the image of God includes everyone in the raw material of their humanity, in their, in their skin and gender and other ways, then why not speak about God in ways that can include everybody? 
But those are the kinds of acts of hospitality that you can only learn when you're sitting at the table with people who are different than you. When you're committed to listening instead of speaking, instead of asking questions, instead of giving opinions, getting into relationships of equality and dignity and respect and learning what it takes from them to offer hospitality to everyone. So here's the question. Who's invited to your table? And how can you and I become the kind of people who invite everyone, but especially extending invitations to those who get invited last, first? Within the church, one of the communities that has consistently been invited last is the LGBTQ plus community. So like every week in the series, we want to give some time for you to hear from Sylvia about her journey of faith as an LGBTQ plus woman. Well, hey, Sylvia, thank you so much for doing this interview with us. Uh, it's great to see you face to face, even if it's just over Zoom. Uh, for those in our community who don't know you, uh, could you just take a moment and introduce yourself to us? Yeah, for sure. My name is Sylvia Zavitz, and uh, I was born and raised in Beamsville. Met my wife in 2016, Jody, and uh, we got married actually three months uh, from the day that we met. Um, and we've been married for coming up to five years now. Yeah, so church was a huge part uh, of my life. I, I really, I, I can't take church away at all. It was, it was uh, my friends. It was my activities. It was everything about uh, who I grew up to be. I mean, you talked, when we spoke the other day, you told me that it was a little bit later in your life when you discovered that you were gay. Um, when you discovered that you were gay, how did you process that uh, in relation to your faith or your experience of faith growing up? That was a huge challenge because uh, being gay is not really an option in, uh, in uh, a really strict, traditional, evangelical Christian faith. And so the first part of my transformation was God speaking to me very directly saying, Sylvia, I created you exactly the way you are. You are exactly who is going to do work for me. I love you. You're worthy. You are enough. You don't need to be anything other than who you are and what you are. Uh, talk about how when you came out publicly as gay how did the church treat you how did how did that affect your relationships with other Christians to be completely honest there were a lot of church members who absolutely embraced me right from the very beginning but there were a lot of church members who did the exact opposite I try to be really really respectful of those people still I'm wanting them to accept my choices and respect me, 
And, and I kind of have to do the same for them. I, I have to respect their choices. Fast forward to uh, finding Southridge. I had uh, gotten to know quite a few people uh, by way of going to an Italian restaurant in St. Catharines. Um, where there was live music every Wednesday night. I'd gotten to know a, a whole bunch of people who went to Southridge. So I went to Southridge on a Sunday morning and they played this video. Big or small here? There's room for us all here. Doubt or believe here? We can all receive here. Gay or straight here. There's no hate here. With this whole message about whichever one of those people you are, you're welcome here. And we invite you to encounter Jesus with us, which was so huge for me because that was the most painful part of everything I had been through with my family and with my church family, because that's what they were saying to me. You're no longer welcome. Tell me with kind of raw honesty, don't, don't pull any punches for you and for Jody. Talk about sort of the, the negative aspects still, even of being part of a church like Southridge. Like, do you, do you want me to be fully? and completely honest here. That's the hope. For me, it's enough to know that I'm absolutely welcome in your midst. But for some, the fact that you wouldn't be allowed to actually perform a same-sex marriage, that speaks volumes. Because if you're not able to perform a same-sex marriage, that says something about your fundamental definition of what marriage is. And, and if that is still the traditional marriage is one man and one woman for life, then that is always going to be a message to those of us who don't fit into that definition of marriage. Sure. Um, that still communicates something less than full acceptance and full inclusion. People, people are allowed to have differences of opinion um, and people are allowed to think their own thoughts, but be respectful in the process and, and not draw lines of exclusion as a result of those differences of opinion. The church should be the place where we feel the most welcome. That, I think at a really fundamental level, that's what Jesus was all about. That church is where you're welcome. You're, you're, you could have issues in all sorts of other places. But come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What does that mean?
if not that this is my design for church for the community for the family of church that you feel like you are a part of this and you belong i don't i don't pretend to think that 100% of the members at southridge uh all believe that gay marriage is fine because I'm sure some of them have issues with it too. I, th I think for a lot of my LGBTQ plus friends, the church is the last place where they feel welcome. The church is where we should feel rest and acceptance. But that's that's what Jesus says. That's what Jesus wants for his people and for his church. And so it causes me great pain every time I, I know someone else who's really kind of turned their back on church because they've felt so much judgment and so much... Uh, resistance to who they are. I mean, for, for people who are part of the LGBTQ plus community, um, the church has often put them last. But Jesus said that in, in God's kingdom, the last become first. What are some practical ways here and now that at Southridge, we could be a last becoming first kind of a church LGBTQ plus people. Providing a place where we feel welcome is, is all it takes to heal um, the hurt that was done. Rather than feeling really, really strong in your conviction, whatever side it puts you on, find somebody and befriend them. As soon as you get to know them and understand what their struggles have been and what life has been like for them, that helps you gain insight into what, what their life has been like and it makes you a lot less likely to be judgmental you have been incredibly gracious incredibly kind uh even just really so encouraging and i really want to thank you for sharing this with our church sharing with me personally and helping me get better thank you tom